I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Rossi Anastopoulo. Her new book is Sweet Land of Liberty, A History of America in 11 Pies. Rossi, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to be here. Telling the story of American history through pie is such a brilliant idea. I would love to know how you pitched this book and what those reactions were like to that pitch. Yes, I can say that the reactions were probably pretty varied. I think that there were a number of people who were probably confused, um, probably didn't realize that you could get um, you know, a whole book's worth of information out of this story. But I do think that the people who got it really got it. Um, I think that if you are kind of plugged into um, how special pie can be, the wide variety of pie that exists in the States, the long history that some of these pies, that many of these pies have, you kind of know, oh yeah, there there is a lot to tell here. So um, the way I was kind of thinking about it originally was like, an incomplete history of the United States um, told through pie. And, you know, you can tell not all of our of our history through this dish, but quite a bit of it. And, um, you know, that's kind of try- how I tried to explain it to folks um, when kind of originally formulating this idea. You write that pie, at least as we know it in this country, is one of the few quintessential American dishes that we have. So what in particular is so American about pie? Well, pie is so interesting because it does, in some forms, um, it's almost a globally universal thing, this idea of crust and filling. But American pie, this very distinct version that we know in the States, is very individual to our country. So it's really what we think of as this nine-inch, typically circular dish in that classic pie plate with the sloped sides Um, And another distinguishing factor is that typically American pies are sweet. Um, And that's something where, you know, they're not always so, but we we have a sweet tooth in this country. And so it's really a pure sweet dessert. That shape and these flavors and that um, iconic flaky pastry that we typically have, um, you know, you you can have other types of crust, of course, but that really iconic pie crust that we have um, is also a distinguishing factor because, you know, in other countries, you might find something that's more of a short crust or a hot water crust um, and something that's slightly different than than what we typically have. So the subheader of this is a history of America in 11 pies. And there are a few chapters in the book, you know, starting out talking about something sweet, pie, we all love pie. But as you dig into the history around certain pies and how they connect to our own history, the story gets more complicated. Pumpkin pie is embedded in the myth of Thanksgiving as we know it today. You write about the connection between molasses and the slave trade in your chapter on molasses pie. As we learn some of the real history behind these foods, is it still possible for you to enjoy the dessert as well? I think so, because I think that pie, um, you know, the pie itself is not inherently problematic. Instead, it's a vessel and in some case a representation of these more complicated and difficult stories about our country um, and our history. And so I think that they can be lenses through which to perhaps have more difficult conversations or um, to acknowledge more of the reality of the American experience for so many people who have lived in this country. And so, you know, I don't think that you, um, as I write about in Molasses Pie, you know, despite the 
really um, the horrors that have been part of the story of molasses and molasses pie. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a slice, but we do need to be honest with ourselves, uh, I believe, about about what that history is and, you know, what are the people and the instances in the history that have shaped the history of a pie, you know, that brought it to um, where we might be eating it today and, and have it on our plate. I found it interesting and appalling in equal measures to read about pumpkin pie that it it's not just erasure of indigenous roles in this food, in the starting of this country, but that pumpkin pie itself, as we know it, was actually used as a tool to erase, you know, indigenous culture. Like it was an active tool in that in that part of our history. That was one of the um most heartbreaking anecdotes I came across while researching this book there, um, you know, there's a story about um, a school that existed in the 1800s and its sole purpose was to assimilate native um, kids into, you know, the quote unquote United States of America. And yes, part of that, part of that school's curriculum included a, quote, uh, you know, traditional and you, you know, that, that is a, I'm, I'm have air quotes around that word. Um, Thanksgiving celebration, which included pumpkin pie. And so it was meant to, um, yeah, as you refer to, it was, it was a tangible tool in the indoctrination and the propagation of, of this Thanksgiving myth. Can you just take us through a brief history of pumpkin and maybe not even pumpkin pie, but I just think it's important to understand that something that we consider such a huge part of kind of this America mythology wasn't ours. Well, pumpkin and squash more broadly is native to North America, um, and it's one of the food sources that were um, a, a large part of native diets and the diets of indigenous people. Um, and when European colonizers arrived to North America and had to learn how to eat in this new continent, in this new place, you know, they turned to squash and turned to pumpkin and relied on that native food knowledge and um, agricultural knowledge to then feed themselves and to survive on this continent. And, you know, you extend that into what they then did with this pumpkin. Um, they turned it into pumpkin pie. Um, and so in many ways took this native North American food source and reimagined it in, in this form that was very distinctly European, distinctly British. Um, and I think that you know, there's a real through line to the mastery of, um, you know, native lands and and what that, what Europeans did to that. And so pumpkin in many ways embodies the story, the broader story of um, of what happened in, in North America. You mentioned at least one story that you found very heartbreaking in your research. Was there anything else that you uncovered that just was a real surprise to you? I was constantly surprised throughout the book. I'll share an example, maybe a more lighthearted example. While a lot of these stories are um, hard and difficult, there were some that were quite fun and um, quite whimsical. And while researching the chapter on tofu cream pie, um, that is a pie that um, comes from a tradition of activists quite literally throwing pies in people's faces uh, as a form of political protest. And so while researching that chapter, I was constantly surprised by the sheer scale to which people were throwing pies and the people that they managed to hit, everyone ranging from Bill Gates to uh, Sylvester Stallone and more. Um, and that chapter, while I knew that this was a phenomenon that had occurred, I don't think I had any 
real grasp for how widespread it was um, and how in some ways really delightful it was. So that one was uh, a chapter in which really each new anecdote was surprising in a good way um, and, mm. and helped, I think, share how, how the, the multiple um, the multiple types of stories that Pi can tell. There's also a real connection between Pi and the socioeconomic status, you know, at different times in the country. I really loved the chapter on mock apple pie because I grew up with that in my family. We didn't have a lot of a whole lot of money growing up. So when mom wanted to bake an apple pie, out came the saltine crackers. So I'm I'm curious if you can just tell us a little bit more about how mock apple pie is connected to our history. That's so special that you made that growing up. I love to hear that. Um, and yeah, mock apple pie has a long history. Um, it first um, started cropping up around the 1850s when people were traveling out west and didn't have access to um, a lot of ingredients and you know may not have access to fresh apples. And it became popular during the Civil War as well, during another time of hardship and scarcity. Um, and then again, later, it, it, it was made throughout the um, subsequent decades, but being popular and most closely associated with the Great Depression and World War II um, in the 1900s and mock apple pie. Um, to your point, you know, it's made from crackers and it really embodies this idea of, you know, making do with what you have. Um, pie is something that's really special and that people enjoy and that can bring, um, you know, warm, nostalgic, comforting, comforting feelings. And you might not have the traditional ingredients to be able to make it, but there's still real value in making it in whatever form that you can. And that might include making an apple pie with crackers instead. It's funny that at least where I grew up in Texas, there were actually, you know, friendly arguments at church over which kind of cracker was best for a mock apple pie. Uh, there was definitely the Ritz versus Saltine Club. You know, it was just so ingrained in that part of society during the time I was growing up, but it's not really made as much today. People don't seem to be as aware of it. Are there pies that you think have kind of fallen out of favor that used to be very much a part of our history? I think molasses pie is definitely a strong example of that. You know, molasses just isn't the dietary staple that it used to be. Um, and for that reason, I think that it's it's kind of... Um, definitely become less commonly found um, and not something that people really have a taste for anymore. You know, molasses is a very, very distinct, very potent taste. And I don't think that's just part of the modern American diet. Um, you know, same goes for things like jello pie. I think that that is still enjoyed and certainly is very handy for people who might not have the time or um, you know, desire to make a full pie from scratch, but it feels like Jello really had a heyday, um, you know, in previous decades and something that has become a little bit less central to how we eat and bake right now. Well, Jello pie in the chapter that you write about that is so closely associated with that time in our history where convenience foods really started taking over. Exactly. It really is one of the best examples of that. Um, and what's so interesting about Jello pie in particular is that you know, it's not jello. It's something that um, you're still taking some form of active labor. You're still, you're still baking, even if it is very streamlined and very shortcutted because you're using jello in the filling. Um, but it, you know, very purposely is meant to be something that, um, you know, women in particular, the primary demographic to whom jello and jello pies are marketed, um, you know, they're meant to still uh, have the opportunity and encourage to uh, you know, indulge in some form of creativity to 
actually make pie and not just, you know, add water and call it a day, which is really fascinating how um, the expectations of women, particularly women who were working from home and who are housewives, you know, what they were um, in many ways expected to or encouraged to do in the kitchen and how jello pie plays into that. I, I definitely wasn't necessarily thinking of pie in terms of gender roles when I when I sat down to read this book. But let's talk about quiche and especially how apparently quiche kind of had this connection to, I guess I'd call it a side of maybe toxic masculinity where quiche was not for men. Um, so how did quiche become not a man's pie, I guess? <laughs> So it really comes back to this book that was published in 1982, and it was quite literally titled Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. Um, so it kind of said it all right there. And if that title is not enough to tell you, um, it was meant as a satire, particularly a satirization of um, masculinity and manly tropes and um, kind of uh, poking fun at what men, you know, said said that they themselves could and couldn't do. And you know, some other foods that kind of got um, thrown some shade were things like tofu and yogurt and light beer, but it was quiche because of the its titular role that really took off and um, became this, this phrase, real men don't eat quiche. And people started getting really worked up about it, whether or not they even got the joke. Um, you know, there is one food editor writing for a newspaper who um, and, and she's a woman, but she was writing about it around this time about quiche. And she writes in the new newspaper about how, you know, she loves quiche, but she doesn't want to call it quiche in her newspaper column because people might not like that and men might not want to eat it. And so should she just call it like a vegetable pie? And um, it really became part of the cultural lexicon, this idea. Um, and it comes, it goes a little bit deeper even than than just that book, even if the book is what popularized it. But there are other assertions that kind of make quiche, quote unquote, not manly, including things like its connection to France um, or vegetarianism or even the countercultural movement. And so I think it becomes a real example of um, gender roles and food at large in our culture. It's kind of funny to think about food having a gender, but in many ways it does. And it becomes embroiled in, um, you know, what men and in some cases women are and aren't allowed to enjoy. It's amazing because I immediately did a very informal poll of many of my male friends and and that, that thinking exists today. It's so weird. It's true. And I think people maybe don't even know why, like they just know like, Oh, real men don't eat quiche. And, um, it's just, it's just a thing. And, it's so funny. My, I was telling my dad about it when I was writing this chapter and he had not heard of real men don't eat quiche. He wasn't familiar, but even when I explained to him what was happening, um, you know, and how this was a whole joke and a satire, he was like, wait, should I not be eating quiche? So really, I think that, you know, men sometimes <laughs> are afraid to be seen as not manly. And um, <laughs> I just found that funny that, that that was the takeaway that he had from that. <laughs> So I guess one thing you want readers to take away is it's okay to eat quiche, man. It's actually really, really good. Quiche is fantastic. I encourage everyone to eat quiche. It's delicious. I also noted you write about sweet potato pie. Um, you write about bean pie in the nation of Islam. In reading the book, and anybody I think who is familiar with food history in America specifically knows that so many foods have such specific roots in Black culture. Do you think that this is something 
we tend to think about when we think about food in general, just where culturally our food comes from? I think it's something that um, can always, you know, probably can always be done more. I think that we're starting to food writers and recipe developers and editors are starting to be more thoughtful, I found, about discussing the origins of certain ingredients or the cultural um, specificity of where they come from and why they're important. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, in some cases that also has been erased. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, which was a real center point for um, a lot of Black culinary ingenuity when, you know, in the 1800s and later. And I don't think that as a city or region, we're always very thoughtful or honest about the contributions of Black chefs and cooks and caterers. And, you know, I think that it's something that we can always be more thoughtful about. And it's very important, I think, to acknowledge and to understand where food traditions and knowledge and expertise comes from, um, particularly in our country, because we are such a melting pot. And there have been so many influences that have come from, um, you know, countries and cultures outside of our own. It's also about the women who came up with so many of these recipes and of these pies. Did you have a favorite story in that regard? I think that one that is so important that maybe doesn't always get the acknowledgement that it should is Amelia Simmons, who wrote the book American Cookery um, in 1796. And this is the first cookbook published in the United States meant for chefs and cooks in in the States using ingredients that they could find um, in North America. And that, you know, comes at the same time when the United States is a very new country and, um, you know, is kind of spreading its wings. And it's a real um, cultural turning point, you know, turning away from uh, this country's origins as a collection of English colonies and kind of the um, influence of of England and how that in many ways was shaping um, our food culture and kind of turning towards this new path and becoming truly American. And so to be this document of this time and place and this inflection point is so powerful. And so Amelia Simmons, I think, um, you know, we should talk about that more and, and understand that that her role and her cookbook's role in the founding of our country. I think it's always also really interesting um, that you have recipes for many of the pies that you're talking about in the chapters and that you can trace our country's history through those ingredients as well for times when certain spices became available, when certain foods became available. For example, we got to talk about a m- apple pie and the apple, as we know it, didn't exist in America when the early colonizers came over. Exactly. It was just crab apples here. And so, um, you know, that's another example of these um, these colonizers setting their flag, metaphorically speaking, on uh, American soil, you know, quite literally um, sowing the seeds of apple trees and, you know, that going on to become a real symbol for our country, I think is is a pretty powerful metaphor. I, I loved the connection, the story that you told, because I've always wondered how how did apple pie in particular, you know, become the American pie? Um, and I think a lot of it is really about emotion and the emotion that we have to food. You uh, write a little bit about how I believe it was in World War One, what soldiers wanted was a slice of apple pie. Yes. War uh, is an incredibly powerful, I think, cultural touchstone. It's something that can really shape countries. And it it certainly did for <laughs> certainly did for apple pie's role in American um, 
in American culture and symbolism, uh, both World War One and Two, um, and it's something where you know these soldiers who were fighting abroad, they were longing for apple pie. I believe there's one you know general or you know leader in the army who wanted to boost his uh, soldiers' morale, and so decided to serve them apple pie and thought that might get them excited. Kind of extending from that, apple pie, funnily enough you know, you talk about emotion, it was used in some ways to discuss and to promote American superiority over other countries. There are a lot of people, you know, around that time who were talking about how American apple pie is the best and so-and-so foreign national came over to the United States and they just fell in love with apple pie and that shows how great this pie is and by extension how great America is. Um, and then you have, you know, there's one um, account from a French person in a newspaper where they complained that Americans were stomping around their French village talking about how America had invented apple pie. And, you know, this French person says, like, they just think they invented everything. I tried to tell them we had apple tarts long before, but they insist that because they have this apple pie that they're the better nation. And, um, you know, apple pie, <laughs> apple pie is a barometer to measure a country's um, you know, strength and superiority is quite funny, but it was quite common. And I think goes to show it's, um, you know, how it was thought about as a rep representation of the United States of America at large. If you had to connect a particular pie to our society today, to this moment in history, what pie would it be? Oh, that is a great question. I think that there are so many pies to choose from that I can't have one come to mind. But, you know, at the risk of sounding cliche, I think that apple pie, um, as I write about a bit in my book, it is a good example of, you know, the American experience, but not necessarily, um, you know, for all the reasons I just mentioned, or the reasons that people have always talked about it in the context of America. Um, I think that it you know, embodies the immigrant experience in many ways. We talked about how apples are not indigenous to North America. Neither are things like sugar or spices or so many of the other ingredients that go into this pie. Um, and yet they've all come here and melded into something that is very distinct. And, you know, I think that in in many ways that um, kind of embodies the, um, you know, the experiences of immigrants and immigrant families and communities who have come to who have come to this country. Rosie, I'm wondering if you would read a little bit from your book for us today. Absolutely. On February 1st, 1960, Azel Blair Jr. entered the F.W. Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, along with several of his friends, took a seat at the counter, and ordered coffee and a slice of cherry pie. Woolworths was a popular lunch destination in Greensboro, a place where you could go for a quick burger or sandwich, maybe a cup of coffee with a slice of pie on the side. The interior was basic but comfortable, a row of metal-backed stools, lined a long counter littered with sugar canisters and salt and pepper shakers, behind which servers and paper hats took orders and refilled coffee cups. It was a sort of democratic spot that served a large cross-section cross of the town's population, from local lawyers in suits to thrifty college students from ne nearby UNC Greensboro. There was one exception to this clientele, however. Woolworths did not serve Black customers. Zell Blair and his three friends, all of whom were Black, knew this when they entered Woolworths that winter day. As freshmen at the local North Carolina Agriculture, Agricultural and Technical State University, they were accustomed to the strict racial codes that governed Greensboro, dictating where they could eat and shop and live. Therefore, unlike all the other patrons, their trip to the Woolworths lunch counter that day was meticulously planned. Inspired by nonviolent protests, 
including a television program he had previously watched about Mahatma Gandhi, Blair had joined his friends in organizing a deliberate civil rights protest by staging a sit-in at the all-white Woolworths lunch counter. The tactic, which had already been employed several times in lunch counters throughout the South, was decided after the group dared each other to do it during a campus bowl session. Determined to be organized and disciplined, the students planned their approach deliberately, plotting their route to ensure success. First, the group stopped at a nearby store owned by white businessman Ralph Johns, a social activist who supported the NAACP and was sympathetic to their cause. Next, the four young men visited the Woolworths by the Dime store, where they purchased several items and carefully saved their receipts. Finally, they took their seat at the Woolworths lunch counter and politely placed their orders, with Azelle Blair Jr. requesting coffee and cherry pie. It seems no coincidence that Blair ordered pie during this historic moment. The dish was a staple of Southern diners and lunch counters, part of the distinctly American cuisine such establishments served, and it could be found in similar lunch spots across the region. Pie was a familiar order. It was also deeply and traditionally American, a direct product of the United States. It seemed that if a Black American could eat a pie, this symbol of American innovation and identity, at a lunch counter in North Carolina or anywhere else in the South, he or she might be considered just as equal an American citizen as anyone else. Seated calmly at the lunch counter, the four young men were immediately denied service. Unfazed, they remained, refusing to be denied. Blair waited for his slice of pie. Unlike white Woolworths patrons, he didn't receive it. And thus, with one order, Azal Blair Jr., Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, and David Richmond sparked a wave of social protests that ignited throughout the region. The next day, more students from North Carolina A&T arrived at Woolworths to protest along the four, alongside the four men. Two days later, Black protesters were seated in 63 of the restaurant's 66 seats, with employees occupying the remaining three. The protests rippled out beyond Greensboro to Charlotte, Winston-Salem, and Durham, and eventually as far away as Jackson, Mississippi. While pie was ordered by civil rights activists and sit-ins throughout the 60s, it played a different role in these protests for white people intent on imposing the fight for desegregation. For Black customers and protesters at lunch counters, being served pie was a symbol of equality, but segregationists instead turned the dish into a weapon of division. In many cases, the white reaction to Black protesters became violent, and when this happened, they often pelted activists with food and smeared them with pie. Anne Moody, a participant in a sit-in at a Jackson, Mississippi Woolworths in which angry white high school students began violently attacking the protesters, recalled, we bowed our heads to pray and all hell broke loose. The mob started smearing us with ketchup, mustard, sugar, pies, and everything on the counter. In these instances, pie became politicized and racially charged. Now, transformed into an object for intimidation and power, it was a weapon for those aiming to pres preserve the status quo. In these lunch counter settings, battlegrounds over which some of the fiercest wars of the civil rights movement were waged, control over pie became a metaphor for racial victory. For Black Americans, being served pie represented a win for equality and justice. Meanwhile, white Americans sought to reclaim the dish by using it as a tool in physical assaults. Underlying this struggle is the fact that, like much of the food prepared at these Southern lunch counters, the pie being served was a descendant of both Black and white culinary influences. The segregationist violent efforts were to no avail. Six months after the original Greensboro Four calmly took a seat at the all-white lunch counter, Woolworths officially desegregated. And when, over a decade after he had first placed his fateful order at the Greensboro Woolworths lunch counter, Azel Blair, 
By then known as Jibril Kazan, after he joined the Islamic Center of New England and changed his name in 1968, returned to the same Woolworths for a reunion with the three other men alongside, alongside whom he had shaped history. The Greensboro Daily News proclaimed, first sit-in participant finally gets cherry pie. And with one slice, victory had finally been achieved. Rossi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so enjoyable. Rossi Anastopoulos' new book, Sweet Land of Liberty, is available now. Find out more at WSKG.org. And if you try one of the recipes, I'd love to know how it tastes. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sorakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>